It's happening right now in China. It's why thousands are fleeing into Bangladesh. It's the motivation for the Easter church bombings in Sri Lanka earlier this year. Religious persecution. It's a massive issue that too often fails to even register on our radar. So listen up. It's time we faced facts. This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. G'day, it's great to have you with us on Signs of the Times Radio this week. I have with me on the phone, via Skype actually, from Sydney, Graham Tom, who works for Amnesty Australia as their refugee advisor. Thanks so much for joining us, Graham. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, Graham, often what we do on, on Signs of the Times Radio is get to know our guests a little bit just, just personally. I mean, obviously, you know, to the level that, that you're comfortable with. But I find it really interesting that you are in, in that role with Amnesty Australia. How did that happen? What, what was sort of the chain of events that led you to, to be where you are today? Yeah, it's a good question. I've been with Amnesty now for uh, over 20 years. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, um, it's a, an organisation that, that I hold very dear and, you know, I think we do amazing work. But I actually started more as an academic. Uh, you know, I did international relations at mm-hmm. university, my undergraduate. My master's looked at sort of the mass movement of people and through a sort of security uh, lens. And then I decided to do a, a PhD looking at how mass movements of people, how migration sort of shifted understandings of uh, citizenship and, and what it means to be Australian, what it means to be German, what it means to be British. You know, I looked at post-war migration and its impact on identity and rights and and through that got interested in refugees and asylum seekers and you know, how they are viewed, you know, a group that's supposed to have rights that, to protect them and yet are often the most marginalised in, in Western countries that claim to to be, you know, the bastions of, of civil rights and uh, human rights. And so, yeah, through that, when I finished my PhD, I thought, well, do I stick with academia or what else is out there? And I'd always been interested in the work of Amnesty International and, and this role came up and you know, exciting times back then around the arrival of boats in Australia in sort of 1988, 1998, 1999, mm, 2000. Mm. And, T- Tampa uh, and all this sort of thing. Yeah. Tampa and, yeah. yeah, offshore processing started. And, you know, it was, yeah, very sort of interesting time to be out there sort of advocating for refugees and refugee rights. Okay, wow. So, as you say, you came from that sort of academic background, but now in, in an advocacy sort of role, has any of that involved you actually being able to, you know, leave these shores and sort of encounter refugees, you know, where they are in perhaps, you know, their, the first refugee camps or or as they're, you know, trying to make their way to a, a country of refuge or, you know, making asylum claims, that sort of thing? Have, have you had that sort of one-on-one contact now and again? Yeah, absolutely. And it's been one of the great things about working with Amnesty International. You know, part of my work is advocacy, but it's also research as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, I've visited most of the detention centres here in Australia, as well as Christmas Island. I've been to Nauru. I've been to Papua New Guinea. But it's also important, to, as you say, understand why refugees flee and where they're fleeing from. So, 
you know, I've been to the, the Thai-Burma border. I've been to see the Rohingya in Bangladesh in the camps there. Mm-hmm. I've been to see refugees in India. I've been to Syria, Iraq, Jordan, been to uh, Kenya. You know, it's, it's, and I've also seen detention centres in Indonesia, Malaysia, even the Netherlands. Yeah. You know, so how, how various different countries around the world respond to refugee movements and asylum seekers is always different, but it's always depressing. It's always, you know, inspirational stories as well of survival and courage and, you know, yeah, being on the Thai-Burma border at a time when, you know, you had families crossing, fleeing violence and sleeping, you know, under, under the stars was, was really, you know, a sight to behold. And, yeah, absolutely heartbreaking moments like that, mm. as well as, you know, seeing people who I'd met in, in Jordan who, you know, religious minorities who have been forced to flee Syria and Iraq bumping into them in Sydney and, and ha- having them come up and say, thank you, you know, you helped us get to safety. You know, those, are, those are the moments that, that really make the job worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I'm just reflecting, listening to, you know, this sort of litany of misery that you've been exposed to. Um, what, what keeps you sort of going through that? I mean, are those little moments, those little successes enough to, I guess, sort of, you know, offset that kind of compassion fatigue that so many of us can struggle with? Yeah, I think so. I think you have to realise what you can do. And then that's why working for Amnesty International is so important for me because, you know, I am part of a, a larger movement of millions of people around the world who are trying to defend human rights. So, you know, we, we have a role to play and, and we do actually get to see some of the results of our work and we do get to meet the people who we help. But, you know, you are right. That compassion fatigue is there, working with refugees, working with asylum seekers. You know, it's a horrible situation watching a family forced to, to flee their homes, you know, having suffered horrible abuses mm-hmm. and then having to deal with the politics in your own country and see that, you know, what, what are really human stories turned into political cannon fodder at election time it is very depressing you know that that stuff is tough but realizing you're there you're making a difference you are helping people and that you know there are situations where you can make a difference is is what keeps you going yeah, yeah. Now, Graham, j- just earlier, you you mentioned these you know religious minorities coming out of out of Syria and you know via Jordan and ending up in Australia. And look, this is the the reason that uh, that we asked you to to help us out with uh, with the show this week because in this month's Signs of the Times magazine, we have an article entitled Five Reasons the World Needs a Wake Up Call on Religious Persecution" by Evelina Ochab, which is a great article. Definitely encourage our our listeners to, to check it out. But I really wanted to, I guess, get that perspective, perhaps more of an Australian perspective, because she's writing from, from the UK. And I, I guess I really wanted to get your perspective on, you know, amongst all this issue of, you know, asylum seekers and refugees and all these various, you know, uh, minorities that are persecuted, these political situations, what, what proportion of asylum claims have a, a religious aspect to them? Well, it's a very interesting question. And again, it's useful to understand 
how people come to Australia as refugees because mm. Australia is quite interesting. We have a an offshore humanitarian program which looks to bring 18,750 people to Australia each year through a, a designated program and that program targets particular groups working with UNHCR but also through families in Australia sponsoring their own communities and, and their own relatives. Mm -hmm. And so that program, you know, does target a lot of the minorities that we're talking about. So, so Syria and, and Iraqi refugees are, are two of the biggest groups that come to Australia through that program, as well as people from Myanmar. And what's interesting is that's generally the Karen and uh, Kareni from the Thai-Burma border, we don't resettle Rohingya, who are the, the persecuted Muslim major, uh, minority who've been forced to flee into Bangladesh. So mm. some interesting questions there. So, it, you know, and, and again, the, the split between what constitutes an ethnic group as opposed to a religious group, you know, one of the groups that Australia has targeted through its humanitarian program are the Yazidis uh, mm. from Iraq who were, were horribly persecuted by ISIS. And, you know, there are still 3,000 women who remain missing. You know, these were the women that were, were kidnapped and, and sold into sexual slavery. And so Australia, to its credit, has resettled a significant number of, of Yazidis. You know, so are they a minority religious group or are they an ethnic group? And they're actually a bit of both yeah. and, and similar you know, with some of the other groups that we've resettled from Iraq, like the Sabean Mandaeans, who mm. are a group that follow John the Baptist. Their religious religion is based around John the Baptist. But we also have Chaldeans and Assyrians and others who are being resettled. So the, the, these groups. are like Catholic or Orthodox sort of Christians? Um, yeah, who are the yeah. More, you know, Catholic or Orthodox groups. So, yeah. you know, and as well, we, we resettled Baha'i, both from Iran and Iraq, uh, mm. another minority group. So, you know, a, a lot of it does have religious um, elements as well as, as ethnic elements. When it comes to the other group we're talking about, asylum seekers, you know, people who come by plane, mm. that's also very interesting because we have something like 24,000 plane arrivals last year seeking asylum, wow. of which a very small number are actually granted protection. A lot of that group uh, are not recognised as refugees. But we have people coming from China, Malaysia, India, Pakistan, Indonesia, uh, and again, you know, you look at China, for instance, at the moment, you're, you're talking about political persecution, but you're also talking about religious persecution. We have a number of people who are Christian coming out of China seeking protection here in Australia. We have, you know, the Falun Gong, Falun Dafa. Mm. We have horrendous persecution of the Uyghurs currently in, in China at the moment. Yeah, who, who, not who, many who, who are Muslims generally, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Who are Muslim, but who, you know, not many are actually getting on planes and coming to Australia. You know, we have one and a half million potentially who are locked up mm. in these extraordinary camps in China at the moment. So, you know, it, it's an interesting question and it's not ever really broken down in terms of, of why people are, are actually seeking protection. But I think it's, it's pretty clear when you look at those groups coming from Syria and Iraq that a lot of it is around their religious minority status, you know, when it comes to those who are being resettled to Australia.
Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess so the situation in Syria where you have, well, we, we've had the so-called Islamic State group there, obviously, you know, trying to set up a, a religious caliphate. So the, the persecutors in that sense were very much coming from a, a religious point of view. So I guess it stands to reason that the people they will target will be targeted, you know, for religious reasons, uh, among others. Well, that's absolutely right. And I mean, the interesting thing about, you know, Syria is there's now 6.7 million refugees from from Syria in places like Jordan and Lebanon and Turkey and, and right around the world. And depending on where you live in Syria, whether you're, you're Shiite or Sunni, you know, depends on how you're being persecuted, because obviously Islamic State were a, a very Sunni based Islamic group. So a lot of Shiite uh, Muslims were also targeted in, in the areas that they controlled. And, you know, they're probably the biggest group that have been forced to flee out of Syria. But Australia has made it very clear through its program, particularly its humanitarian program, that it is going to look at minority groups because it believes that those are the groups that won't be able to return easily to Iraq or Syria. And mm-hmm. so for that reason, we have had groups like the Ascides and other uh, Christian and, and other minorities being particularly targeted through our humanitarian program, uh, yeah, which yeah. has been very interesting. Which, which is kind of sad because I guess the, I mean, Iraq has been, you know, quite a diverse area, you know, ethnically and, and in terms of, you know, multi-faith and it's sort of at risk of, you know, a lot of these minority groups disappearing. Now, I'm, I'm wondering, Graham, I think, I mean, many of us may remember, you know, back in high school when we, you know, we had a talk in assembly from Amnesty International and the, and the thing that we were often asked to do was to participate in some sort of letter writing campaign focusing on particular cases where people are being targeted, often imprisoned, you know, political prisoners, prisoners of conscience or, or whatever. Are there examples right, right, right now, individual cases that Amnesty is working on where the persecution that these people are experiencing has a religious aspect to it? Yes, it's still very much part of our work. And I would just recommend people look at our website. Uh, we have a number of those cases on our website and we we like people to take action. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, you mentioned, Graeme, a number of, I guess, the, the better known hotspots that we hear about, you know, when it comes to sort of large scale religious persecution or whether it's, um, you know, the Uyghur in, in Xinjiang, you know, in China or whether it's the, you know, the Rohingya in, in Myanmar. But what are some of the maybe lesser known human rights abuses on the basis of religion and belief that perhaps the the media doesn't cover that often. Perhaps, you know, if, if people heard about it, it might actually surprise them to hear that there are particular groups suffering persecution in particular countries. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting at the moment in a very sad and depressing kind of way. I mean, the, the situation in Sri Lanka, which a lot of people would have known about, you know, you have the majority Buddhist Sinhalese and the minority uh, Hindu Tamils. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a civil war for many, many years and ultimately, you know, the, the Tamils were defeated and we saw displacement there. But recently we saw Muslims in Sri Lanka blow up churches, Christian churches. Mm, uh, the, yeah, the, the Easter bombings earlier this year, that, that was horrific. Bombing, which, yeah. Just horrific. And, and the backlash, though, from the Buddhist Sinhalese targeting Muslims also impacted on a number of asylum seekers. So you had Pakistani Christians who looked 
like, well, Pakistani. So suddenly you had Buddhists targeting Christians because they looked like Muslims. I mean, it was just this, this horrible situation that was going on following this, these dreadful attacks on, on the Christian minority in, in Sri Lanka. It, you know, it was just so surreal that you just couldn't understand why these, these individuals had been forced to flee. And, and Pakistan is a very interesting country. You know, 2% of the population are Christian, but it still was over 3 million people. And so we are starting to see, unfortunately, Pakistani Christians throughout this region having been forced to flee. You know, we have all sorts of other minority groups that I'd never heard about before I came to work for Amnesty International, like, you know, as I mentioned before, the Sevillian Mandaeans, mm. who followers of John the Baptist, and they ended up, you know, in uh, Iraq and Iran. And these are individuals who predominantly are jewelers, they're pacifists, all their religious ceremonies are, are around water. And but because they're perceived as pacifists and rich, then they're, they're targeted by all sorts of different groups in those countries. And People have been kidnapped for ransom. People have been killed. So, you know, it's an extraordinary situation that there are these minority groups that you often haven't heard about and yet have been, as you say, in those countries for thousands of years and, and happily been part of the society. And yet suddenly with the way things have shifted, you know, in the last five, ten years in the Middle East, they're being forced to flee. And so... You know, out in uh, in Liverpool, in Sydney, here, you know, you have one of the biggest Sabian Mandaean communities anywhere in the world these days. Really, yeah. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, it's a, it's fascinating, um, and you know, amazing people who have now started to contribute beautifully to to Australia. Mm. You know, it's very funny when you're in a talking to refugees in in Jordan, in Amman, and you know, talking to to be in Mandaeans and you're saying, you know, where do you see your future? Where do you want to go? And they say, I want to go to Liverpool. And you're so <laughs> proud of all the places in the world. Fair enough. That's, you know, that's, that's where, where the community at. is. Wow. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating. But yeah, you know, like the Yazidis as well. I guess, you know, a few years ago, nobody had ever heard of the Yazidis in, in Iraq. And yet we now have Yazidi community in Toowoomba in Queensland. Mm. And you know, Toowoomba last year resettled more Yazidis um, than New Zealand settled refugees through its humanitarian program. I mean, it's it's wow. extraordinary the way these communities in Australia are, are now reaching out and, and being, you know, changed for the better, I think, by having the, these minority religious groups come and, and settle and just become part of the community. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm resonating with what you're saying because a, a year or so ago, I visited a, uh, a church in Fairfield in, in Sydney and uh, after the church service, like a, a few of us who, who were there that day basically went up and down the street just knocking on the doors of our neighbours there saying, hey, look, you know, we've got a community event coming up. We'd like to invite you to it. And and in a in that area, there are a number of I think Assyrians from from Iraq. So I think sort of Assyrian Catholic or Assyrian Orthodox believers there. Most of them didn't speak any English at all. But it was just fascinating to know that you know here we are, total strangers, knocking on the door, and the first thing they said is, "Come in." 
you know, come in, come in, you know, do you want a cup of coffee? Do you want a cup of tea? Like straight away, they're feeding us, they're giving us drinks. And I just think of the the difference between your average Anglo Aussie, if a random religious caller knocks on your door (laughs) versus these guys, these Assyrians. And I was just really struck by the the hospitality. And I thought, wow, yeah, I really do think that we have something to learn from from some of these, you know, recent migrants and, and refugees. Yeah, incredibly welcoming people. I mean, I had exactly the same experience when I was in the Ziatri refugee camp on the the Jordan-Syrian border. And these are people who are living in in tents, you know, having been forced to flee their homes with virtually nothing. And yet they were so welcoming. They wanted to, you know, us to come inside their their tents and whatever they had, tea, coffee, you know, they were more than willing to share and, and were, you know, wanting to share with us. And, and just, you know, that hospitality is, is really part of the culture, which is, yeah. you know, amazing given what they've experienced in, in the last few years. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Now, one one fact that we should be including here is that it's not only people who, who are believers who are targeted, it's even people who are non-believers. I understand, for example, that if you declare yourself atheist in Saudi Arabia, and I mentioned there are a number of other countries, but, you know, Saudi Arabia is, you know, very clearly has a death penalty for, you know, apostasy from, from Islam. So you could declare yourself an atheist. You, you could, yeah, yeah so it's, it's not just religion, is it? It's religion and belief or even lack of belief that people can be targeted for. Very true, very true. And this is the same in, in countries like Iraq where it's not illegal to be an atheist, unlike, you know, other countries like Saudi Arabia. And yet... You will face persecution because you know it is just deemed to be, you know, blasphemous. And mm-hmm. and the way blasphemy laws are being used and being warped, you know, and this is you know something that's impacting on, as I've mentioned before, Christians in Pakistan yeah, uh, yeah. and others. You know, by simply declaring you have no faith, that's viewed often as blasphemy, and and you can face serious consequences because of that. So. It's sad to see, unfortunately, the way religion is being used to divide people that have lived together happily for, for centuries. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, that's, that's a really sad feature of, of today's world. It's, it's also interesting what, what you're noting there, Graham, that there, there is a difference between you know, government policy and social or community hostility. I mean, those things can, you know, can create the perfect storm, like in a situation such as Pakistan. I mean, you, you'd think in, in a lot of cases, the government would say, yeah, well, whatever, it happened somewhere out in a village. But if a mob, you know, gets hold of someone who said the wrong thing, did the wrong thing, or was perceived to have, you know, insulted, you know, a, a holy prophet or something like that, boy, it can get nasty very quickly. And it seems like government authorities are often very intimidated, you know, by these, by these mobs and, you know, by people, you know, calling blasphemy. Well, this is, again, a feature of today's world. You know, it's not just religion, but the way, you know, populist politicians are manipulating people and, and what triggers they use to manipulate people, you know, in countries all around the world. You know, it might be ethnicity, you know, it might be religion. It, it, you know, unfortunately, politicians, you know, those who, who want to appeal to populism, you know, don't really care about the consequences and, and that will often feed some of the violence that you're you're talking about. And mm-hmm. we've seen this, for instance, in Myanmar, where you do have uh, that populism 
around, you know, what it means to be a Burmese citizen and what it means to be Burmese or Myanmarese. Mm. Uh, and suddenly you create another. And once you create another, then then the mob rises up. And then how do you put that genie back in the bottle? And unfortunately, when it's, it's mixed with government policy as it is, you know, you talk about the perfect storm. Mm. That's what's happening in Myanmar at the moment. And we saw in a very short period of time nearly a million people forced out of their homes with extreme violence and and now stuck in dreadful conditions in these camps in, in Bangladesh. I mean, when I was there, it was 10 years ago and, you know, there would have just been 30,000 official refugees and maybe a few hundred thousand unofficial refugees. Today, it's it's over a million. Yeah. Wow. Uh, you know, so it's it's... It's incredibly depressing that the, the situation I saw and thought, wow, we have to do something about is now so much worse. But yeah, yeah, it yeah. is. When, when you have politicians want to tap into to that popular. It, it goes very nasty very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Now, Graham, I understand a, a year or so ago, the, the UK government commissioned a study looking at re- religious persecution. And, and one of the, the claims that is made in that report, which seems to be fairly credible, is that about 80% of religious persecution around the world is actually directed at Christians. And some people have commented, it doesn't seem when we, you know, when we look at what's reported in mainstream media, that that sort of proportion is accurately reflected. I mean, instead, you know, we hear about, you know, Muslims in China, the Uyghurs there, or or the Muslim Rohingya, you know, suffering on on the outskirts of Myanmar and in Bangladesh. Um, is what, what's your take on that? Is is there a bias? Has this become a, a political thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I I would find that figure very interesting when you look at sort of the biggest refugee populations, and I can only talk about refugee populations, we're talking about 6.7 million Syrians or 2.7 million Afghans, 2.3 million South Sudanese, over a million people from Myanmar. And so, you know, we are looking often a lot at um, those Muslim minority groups that are being targeted, or in mm. the case of Syria, it's, it's, it's one Muslim group against another Muslim yeah, group. Yeah. So, so South Sudan is, is Christians generally, isn't South it? South Sudan, yeah. though, yeah, is, is, is Christian. And I think that's, you know, often the situations in Africa are, are very, very interesting. I mean, you, you look at Nigeria, for instance, where 42% of the country is Sunni, and, and yet the other... 42%, you know, 32% is Protestant, 10% Catholic. Mm. And so depending on where you are could depend on, on how your, your life is going really. And so, you know, what is interesting from my perspective at Amnesty is that it doesn't really matter, I guess, which religion because, you know, when we talk about Buddhists, you would tend to think, well, I know Buddhists are very peaceful people. And yet mm. if you're a Rohingya in Buddhist Myanmar, your views are very different and similar, you know, if you look at the situation facing minorities in Sri Lanka, they would not see, you know, the Buddhists in the same way and yet we know that Buddhist groups in in other countries are being targeted as we know Christian groups are and I don't like to to say who is being persecuted more or where or, you know, it it really does depend on, on individual situations and individual countries and, I mean, and that is the really sad state of the world at the moment that, yeah. um, you know, you could be a Christian minority 
in Iraq and your life at the moment would be pretty awful. And yet, mm-hmm. you know, you could be a Muslim Uyghur and in China and, you know, it would be equally as awful. And yeah. that's, that's, you know, when you see people flee and when you see people, you know, having suffered persecution and violence and, yeah, you just sort of wonder how has this happened when, you know, most religions are out there promoting peace, you know, this time of year in particular. Yeah, you're right. That, you're talking about and, and that is the bedrock of, of most of the religions we know and yet, how are they being manipulated in such a way that we're seeing all religions at the moment suffering somewhere at the hands of, of a religion that's suffering somewhere else? It's yeah. just, you know, such a surreal situation really, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes. Ha- hashtag peace on earth, I reckon. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, so how does Amnesty help with these, these cases of human rights uh, abuses? And, and I guess the, the real question, how can our listeners, you know, do their part to be a part of Amnesty's work, you know, to intervene, to, um, to like make a difference with, with these injustices? Yeah, well, I think, again, please, please look at our website, we are engaged in these issues right around the world. Amnesty is there, you know, our, our symbol is the candle. We're there to, to shine a light on these injustices. And it's important then that people take action, that we get the Australian government to stand up in the UN and, and call out some of the abuses we're seeing. And, and through, you know, we work uh, very closely to, to talk with the, the Minister for Foreign Affairs. So, you know, Australia has stood up and, and highlighted uh, what's happening in China, um, both to Muslims and Christians, you know, what's happening in Myanmar, what's happening in the Middle East and in Africa. And, you know, unless people take action, governments aren't going to take action. So please get onto our website, you know, whether it's supporting a campaign, whether it's taking action on behalf of an individual, you know, it, it's really up to us if we if we want to see a, a change in the world and if we want to make a difference. Okay, so that's uh, amnesty.org.au? Absolutely, yeah. Great. All right. Yeah, so there's a great website to check out. Um, yeah, find out more about Amnesty's work there. See if you can lend a hand. And, and I guess, you know, have a chat to your local MP, uh, probably federal in particular, and, yeah, let, let them know what you care about. Hey, thanks so much, Graeme. I really appreciate you being part of uh, Signs of the Times Radio this week. Absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for having us on. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. This is an Adventist Media podcast.